0: Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The word of the Lord. Today's chapel speaker is an adjunct of the School of Theology and Christian Ministry. He was the pastor of Genesis and is now currently starting a monastery and writing a book a lover of classic rock and plays the electric guitar. Um, When I attended Genesis, I always appreciated how he spoke truth into world
1: issues, which are so rarely talked about, and so rare also in the church setting. He leads people in openness and honesty, and is a model to me on how my faith should look like and what a thriving
0: faith should look like, himself being super influential in my own life. So with you, would you welcome Will Ryland?
1: Thanks, Leah. And thanks for letting me know that was gonna happen, but still weird. <laughs> Hi, preview students, how are you? How many of you are 18? Yeah? Yeah. Just had your big eighteen year old what's it feel like being an adult? you you enjoying it so far? You know what I did on my 18th birthday? I know you don't, so I'm going to tell you. On my 18th birthday, I bought a pack of cigarettes because I could. Like, I know. Like, so rebellious and absolutely just a grasp to be cool, but it did not end up cool. I'm going to tell you that part too, the embarrassing stuff. I bought a pack of cigarettes because I could. I stopped my car a couple blocks from my mom's house so mom wouldn't see. I got out of the car so mom wouldn't smell, I put the cigarette between my lips, I filled my lungs full of smoke, and I knew in an instant that mom and the doctors and all the anti-smoking campaign folks were not exaggerating in the least. I felt viscerally every single bit of the poison and the corruption that they said was wrapped in that little white paper. My eyes started watering. I had this vision of like how cool and like James Dean, right? Black and white, sitting on the car smoking, and how cool and tough I was gonna look. And then I started crying. (laughs) I bent over, I coughed, I retched, I died a little bit, I think. Now and with all of that, I didn't just have to admit that the experts and the doctors were right, I had to admit mom was right too. That made me feel weak and small and embarrassed. So you know what I did? I know you don't. I'm going to tell you. So you know, I put the cigarette between my mouth, and I filled my lungs again just to prove something. And with the seventh or eighth draw, something really strange started to happen. Everything started to tingle, buzzed, better word. Every, everything started to buzz buzz from the scalp up here on my head down to my toes and it felt like scales were falling off my body and this lightness was entering in now you know I don't know if you know this is this is the nicotine buzz and what's happening is your brain doesn't have enough oxygen it's very very unhealthy but it feels really really good and it felt like as those things, whatever, those scales were falling off, it felt like all of my stress that I was carrying as an 18-year-old was falling off with it. Now, this was, of course, the stuff that was stressing me out at 18 years old. So there's a little bit of the worry about that kiss that I totally messed up on that first date. Which it, it, I came in all wrong, and I stuck my tongue in a girl's eye. It's, just like, it's a fuller story for another time but it it, what matters there in that moment it was totally stressing me out and there's a little bit of worry about getting into a good school and picking the right major so I don't mess up my whole life and there's a little bit of the worry about whether or not dad's paying attention to all of this stuff it felt marvelous and that was absolutely terrifying It scared me how good it felt because I had in my brain, I had the images of the black lungs and the statistics about heart disease and cancer. I had that stuff in my head, but now I knew in myself how you can have all of that knowledge and still come to love something so deadly. It was so scary to me that I never bought another pack of cigarettes between my 18th birthday and a couple years ago after we moved to San Diego and I had my first real panic attack. So we'd moved our family to this new city that if you spent any time in, you know is stupid expensive. Into a neighborhood that everyone was calling th- like hip and thriving and cool. And people were saying things like, I love the locally sourced restaurants and, and the third wave coffee shops and the access to food trucks. And you know it would be just great is if we had we would like cap off the whole thing is if we had our own farmer's market, which they eventually got. Or, you know, like, would it be great if we had a new, one of those stores that just has everything, like Target but not corporate, which they kind of got because they just got Target, so they deal with it. (laughs) But what nobody was saying was, hey, you know what would be great that would just cap off this whole neighborhood is if someone would move in and start a church. No one was looking for that. In fact, I had a neighbor that when he found out I was a pastor starting a church went, oh, well, we moved here to get away from you. And so did a lot of my friends. So welcome to the neighborhood and good luck with that. So the details and all the events, they are what they actually were. And I'm I'm happy to share it. This just doesn't feel like the right time or place to share all the specific details for a couple reasons. One, that might be more helpful in a more personal setting and conversation. Uh, And also because my story is so deeply, deeply entwined with other people's stories. And those are people that even with all of the mess, I still love dearly and would never want to betray their trust. And so just take it at my word. I can back this stuff up if pushed. Um, But for the next three years, everything got really, really hard on every single level, financially, personally, vocationally, relationally, spiritually, every level. Till one night, my son woke up at 3 a.m. And I've watched enough horror movies to know that That's called the hour of the wolf for some really creepy reasons. And he was just saying, Dad, I'm scared. Dad, I'm scared. And I don't know if it was the wind or the shadows or the dreams, but he was terrified. And I just held him and I said, Corbin, it's okay, buddy. It's okay. Everything's going to be okay. And I felt like such a bad person for lying to him. For the next three years, everything got harder. And so, not before this, of course, I had had those nights where I woke up at 3 a.m. and struggled to go back to sleep. Of course, I had felt that knot in the pit of your stomach that you just have to overcome to ask the girl if she wants to go on a date and, because it might go wrong. You might stick your tongue in her eye. You just overcome to get it done. I have known butterflies. I've known that kind of worry. But until that point, I had never felt that jolt that it comes to me right here. It's an instant jolt that shoots my heart rate up to about 220 beats per minute, sends, sends adrenaline shooting through my whole body like I imagine rage moves through the Hulk when he turns from Bruce Banner to the Hulk, the, that thing that makes every inch of my skin tingle, that makes you convinced that the only way through the next few moments of your life are to run faster than you've ever run, hide under a big rock, kill something, or die yourself. That's it. No other options. Fight, flight, freeze. Freeze. It was the first of many times that I felt that jolt that came and that it's going to last as long as it's going to last. It doesn't matter how many times you tell yourself there's no good reason to be afraid. It doesn't matter how many times you tell yourself. Like the worst thing you tell yourself is just calm down. That's the second worst. The first worst is somebody else telling you just calm down. It doesn't work. It's going to last as long as it's going to last. And then once it finally does start to to back off, you know, you could sleep for days. And when this happens, when these fight, flight, freeze instincts kick in because of my personality, because of experiences, the way I understood myself, developed m- making my way through the world, I almost always fight. But the worst of the stuff was so personal and I was a pastor. I right. I mean I couldn't go in on Sunday morning and just start fist fights. I couldn't just start yelling at people and firing people and kicking them out to fix all the problems. So what I did was start making these to-do lists that in hindsight were absolutely insane. I made to-do lists of everything that went out no joke on a 10-year timeline because I was committed. And in the next 10 years, this is everything I have to do to fix everything. Five to 10 pages, single-spaced bullet point. And sometimes one actual bullet point was, rebuild so-and-so's self-esteem and work ethic. And then below that, bullet points about how to make the environment perfect for him so that he could rebuild his self-esteem and work ethic. They were lists that if anybody else had seen them, they could have said, Will, those are insane. Put those in the trash can and move on with your life. But I didn't let anybody see them. I was having regular anxiety attacks, but I didn't tell anyone. Because I didn't want my wife to be anywhere near as scared as I was. This whole thing was my crazy idea. I pitched the dream that got us to move our family to this strange town to do this really, really difficult work. I didn't want her thinking, oh, it's that out of control and you feel like you can't handle it? So I just decided to fight it alone. And prayer was part of what got me into this whole mess. I had learned to be silent, to listen, and to trust God and felt like God had led us into the middle of all this and promised to be there with us. And one day I was sitting over here in Shelter Island as as things were starting to get really bad and I was sitting, uh, and I I don't know how long I was there, but I was in a really, really good place. And suddenly I heard, this is going to be the hardest season of your life. And boom, the panic hit. And there was kind of an unspoken sense of, but don't ever believe that I'm not with you through it. But from that moment on, for the next three years, even though prayer is what led me into this situation, prayer the way prayer felt, pay attention to my words. I'm, I'm being very careful with that on purpose. The way prayer felt changed. I told my wife, it feels like it's turned to ash in my mouth. And the last thing I got that I felt like I heard was, don't ever believe that I am not with you but everything I felt told me I was abandoned and alone in the middle of all of it. So on one level, I knew I was praying more deeply, more honestly, more vulnerably than I ever was before because it got to the place where all I could say was help, help. And then it got to a point where I couldn't even form words. I would just wake up in the middle of the night with a panic attack, bury my face in a pillow and shake and I would put one hand up here above my head, and I would grasp, grasp on with the other hand. And it was—I don't know what it means—but that was my prayer. And I would sit like that, shaking, groaning, with my face in the pillow, so I didn't wake my wife up, holding on to the hand like that. And so I knew I was praying more simply, more honestly, more deeply and vulnerably than I had ever prayed before. And I knew that the the big spiritual saints and masters said that that's a good thing, but it felt terrible. And I knew it wasn't making things feel any better. That's why I bought another pack of cigarettes. And I sat there and I held one of those little poison sticks. And I remembered the buzzing and the feeling of stuff falling off like scales. And I thought, if you can make that happen now with these problems, then we might be able to develop some kind of workable relationship. But I also remembered in that moment holding one of my kids And I compared that to holding my first child. My first child, things were good. It was one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had in my life. One of the moments where I knew God was real and grace was true, and I was blessed. But we had a child in the middle of all of this, and I remember sitting there holding this one going, why can't I feel the way I know this should feel? I know that this is beautiful, but I can't connect to it. I know that this is good, but I can't connect to it. It felt like I was watching from a 1,000 miles away somebody else's life through a stranger's body. And that scared me even more. Because I knew that what I really wanted wasn't just to reconnect, or I didn't just want something that would make it feel better for a little while, but in the end only make it worse. What I wanted was to reconnect with God and the people that I loved most. And so I got help. I finally called a therapist And we got to work. And one of the first things we did was work on my self understanding. Because I liked to, before, think of myself as strong and independent, the kind of person that could handle whatever and pick myself up off the concrete, no matter how many times life sucker punched me. But I just couldn't think of myself that way anymore. And a lot of us create this kind of crazy expectation that in this world we'll never be sad or overwhelmed and paralyzed or scared or angry, that we'll always be strong and independent and productive. But I I learned that it's a sign of an even deeper health that when things aren't right, you don't feel right. Like the worst thing in the world is to be sick and not know it. The fever, the aches are a good thing because it lets you know something is off. If you are in the middle of crazy, unhealthy circumstances, it's a mark of health that you don't feel adjusted. It's a mark of health that you don't feel at ease. And there are things that are going to happen. You are in this life, you are going to feel sad. You're going to feel angry. You are going to be hurt. Those things will not kill you. What will take you out is the expectation that you will never feel them. Or that if you do feel them, that there's not a way through. There are things that will get to every single one of us, but these things get to each and every one of us in very specific ways and in very specific places. We could all share the same event, and it would lodge in your heart in a very specific way, but it would lodge in a different part of your heart. And you might not even feel any emotions, but it'll lodge itself in your brain in a totally different way, and you might totally shut down and power through until your body starts to feel ill and fall apart. It gets to all of us in very specific ways. And what therapy really helped me do was know, why does this stuff get to me in the specific way that it does, as deeply as it does? My therapist would say things like, well, no, 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 like, of course, that would get to anybody. That's irresponsibility that had serious effects on all kinds of people. But you keep using the word abandonment. Why that word? Why do you experience it as that? Now, I'm not, like, this isn't 100% accurate or scientific. If there's a PhD in psychology here, forgive my, like, brutalism with your field. But I think this is okay. When it comes to personality, I think of it a lot like what it's like when we go to the gym to work out. Now, you go to the gym, it would be absolutely crazy, right, to just do curls with your right arm. Like, for years, to the point where you're curling eighty pound dumbbells here and you're like massive and impressive over here and this this arm's all weak and atrophied, right? But we do that with our life. My wife, she can do legs all day, every day. I've got these tiny little chicken legs. <laughs> she will out squat, outrun me, period. And so when it comes to the gym, though, it always feels good. It feels like you're accomplishing something. It feels impressive. It's good for your ego to do the stuff that you're more naturally strong with. But if you just work out your legs and your back isn't strong enough and developed enough to handle the pressure that those strong legs can now handle, you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to find it hard to move through the world. We do that with our personalities. We have certain strengths, things that we learn early on. They work for us. I'm better at this. Some of us, it's our minds. Some of us, it's our feelings. But we find these things that when we face problems early on, they work, and we tend to over rely on them. And it's like just doing curls with the one arm. They get really, really strong because it works for you until they don't. And then now, suddenly, your underdeveloped heart is breaking, and you have no idea what to do with it or your body's still powering through, but your mind is struggling to make any sort of sense or find any sort of meaning in what it is that you're doing and why. So it helped me see that, yeah, there are things that we all have to deal with, but these are why, like, you, this is what you need to develop to actually make it through. And then here are other things that, man, this isn't because of the actual events themselves. It's because of how you're experiencing them. Nobody, I learned that, like, contrary to my expectations, nobody expects me to fix the world for them. I know you're like, yeah, no duh. But no, to me, that was like, holy cow, seriously? I have 35 minutes. No, I don't, I have 25 minutes. Don't worry, I know. I have 25 minutes. They don't expect me to fix their lives? Holy cow, that's, all right, maybe we can do something with that. I learned about why things will feel like abandonment to me when they're not. But I also went and got a spiritual director, Spiritual director is, if you don't know, it's like a, it's a pastor, but it's somebody that has permission to ask really, really hard questions over and over and over and over and over and over over again. And you know, you found a good one when it's kind of like when you open up Amazon and their algorithms have given you the perfect thing and you go, Ooh, I want that. You found a good spiritual director when you get to know them and your soul starts to go, Ooh, whatever it is you have with Jesus, I want some of that. And you just sit down with them and you spend time with them and you let them get to know you and challenge you and ask all kinds of questions. And what therapy helped me do was untangle the whole hairball, lay it out. See, these are the events. This is what happened. This is your past and your personality and why you experience them the way that you do. So here's your work. And what my spiritual director helped me understand was something that I knew in my head, but hadn't really trusted and lived. And that was that prayer is that work. And prayer understood not just as talking to some God some, in some far off place, but as a knowing and communing with God right here, right now, in whatever the messed up circumstances of my life happened to be. To trust the union with God that Christ had already won. That it wasn't a union I had to forge, that I had to make in my head, or by perfecting the whole world. To trust that Christ had done this work, and I in faith get to step into it. Part of the gospel is that Jesus shows us what it is to be human. And if we humans are anything, it's because we love. But in this world, there's no safe place 100% of the time to put that love. It's going to get hurt. And Jesus knew what this is like. Jesus knows that nobody gets through this world without a broken heart, that every single one of our hearts have shades of black and blue, because Jesus took all of this as his own and experienced it. He made friends and gave his heart to people that then betrayed him. He healed people and gave people dignity that turned around and beat him and spat on him and insulted him. He taught people truth that then turned around and tore their clothes and called him a liar and a heretic. And because of all of this, he found himself in midlife. I just made this connection. About the same age I was. Not that I'm Jesus. It's It's good. In midlife, crumpled in anxiety on the floor of a garden, crying out, God, help. God just help. And in Luke, it actually says he got the help that an angel came and ministered to him. But what's interesting about this is the help that he got didn't fix it or make it painless. The help that he got gave him the strength and the trust he needed to go right through it. Didn't give him an easy out, but Jesus kept loving and embracing and healing and forgiving this broken world all the way to the cross. So Jesus doesn't just show us what it is to be human. Jesus shows us what it is to be God. Jesus doesn't just show us what God is like 33 years or so, for for 33 years or so, a couple millennia ago, in some backwoods part of the globe, in some alien culture, leaving all of us here to wonder just how do we even start thinking about God in our time, in our place, with all of our sources of anxiety. Jesus shows us who God is always. And so every bit of Jesus' life is involved in our salvation, If all that this is about is God's ticked off and somebody's got to pay, Jesus didn't have to be born as an infant and spend 30-something years living as a human being. If all that it was about was somebody had to suffer on the Christ and he was God, he could have just shown up a full-grown man in Pilate's courtyard, talked some trash, ticked the guy off, got killed, and had it all done in an evening. But he lived a full human life that culminated in the cross. And so every part of Jesus' life says something about our salvation, including his anxiety in the garden. In that moment, when Jesus is feeling the full depths, the whole abyss of human anxiety, he is uniting us to God. And this is about so much more than just being able to say God knows how it feels. Jesus is with us, embracing us more fully and deeply than we could ever comprehend And so uniting me and you with a love and a peace and a power that is always greater, that is always more full than whatever we're experiencing. This is about so much more than just Jesus knows how it feels. It's about Jesus can do something about it. Now, it's not always what we want. It's not the easy answer. But Jesus can do something about it as he unites us, even in those moments to God, in everything. And being united to God is what salvation is. Now you get that, you might as well have a bachelor's in theology. So remember that, write it down and unpack it over the next couple years of your life. Being united to God is what salvation is. And so now, living in our world embraced by this kind of thing, our anxiety is no longer just hopeless, morbid, meaningless fear about fear. It's an opportunity to see the creator do what the creator does take the dark and the shapeless and form it into something that connects us to the very life of God. Anxiety becomes the material God uses to unite us to God. So this all comes together when what I learned in therapy and spiritual direction and about the gospel gets lived out in concrete daily prayer. Prayer that leads me not just to think certain things but to take certain kinds of actions trusting that I'm communing with God in this action. So I mentioned one of the things that I am terrified of is abandonment. I can be so scared of it that I will convince myself that it's going to happen, even if there's no real basis in reality for that fear. And I, at one point, got so convinced that abandonment is just the thing that happens that I believed my wife was gonna leave me. And the scariest thing in the world was talking about it, because I thought that if I started talking about it, that might make it real, that might make it happen. But I talked to my therapist. And she helped me see how I can come to believe that this is what's happening, even when that's not what's really happening. And I talked to my spiritual director about this and what the gospel means in that situation. And then he said, now is the really, really terrifying hard work. You get to go home and concretely step into trust in God's presence in that by stepping right into the fear. And you just have to ask her. And I said, there's no way I'm going to ask her. And he said, that's the path of prayer. And so I went home, and that evening, as we're putting dishes away, I sat up on the counter, and I said, I'm so scared that you're going to leave me. And she started crying, and she ran to me, and she hugged me. And she said, why would you ever think that? And I know that there are lots of things going on, and in other circumstances, it's so, so, so different. But in that case, i got to tell you, it was so good. It was so good, so healing to have my experience invalidated. By truth. It was, it was divine. It was healing. And I believe it was carried by the presence of Christ that allowed me to step in and do something that I couldn't do on my own. Nothing gets left out. This is a God that embraces every single bit of your life, including whatever it is that makes you scared and anxious. So that love that is unreturned or unappreciated, the fear that you'll never accomplish the thing that will give you worth, the pain, the loss, the death of a loved one, none of those things is excluded from God's embrace that can bring us salvation. Nothing gets left out. And so may you learn that because we are held by our crucified and risen Savior, you may still feel anxiety, but it's different now. As much as anxiety can feel like an abyss, may you come to trust and believe and be aware of an even greater abyss of love and peace and goodness, embracing and carrying and transforming all of it. And if you're in a place now, like we've talked about before, where you just need to raise your hand and say, I need some help, come down and concretely experience that through the things that are available here. There are people that'll pray for you. There's the wellness center over there that could get you some help. And I want you to know that it's not just about fixing things so you can be more productive and get back to accomplishing all the things. It's really about stepping out in faith and in grace to be able to genuinely experience the actual presence of a God that can transform the whole thing and let you know something about what salvation is here and now as you're united to your creator. Thanks.